turn with me, please, to the book of Acts, chapter 17. And there we find the Apostle Paul in Athens, where we left him uh, some time ago in December. Acts chapter 17, verse 16, through verse 34, the end of the chapter. And hear God's word. Now, while while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some, uh, you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath and all things. And he's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as also some of Your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this. To all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, we'll hear again uh, on the matter. Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed among them. uh, Dionysius and. Areopagate guide a woman named uh, Demarius and. Others with them. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. And we ask you that you would uh, once again, through the preaching, open it up to us. Uh, we, we understand that the reading of the scriptures is powerful to save, but you've also appointed the preaching as a means by which uh, we gain things from the reading that we never would on our own. And so use this time, O oh God, to open up powerfully the scriptures to us and we ask this in Jesus name amen 
Well, as I said, we left Paul uh, alone in Athens. Remember, he uh, left his two companions, travel companions, uh, Silas and Timothy, and, uh, and went on really fleeing to Athens for safety. And so there he was in Athens waiting for them to rejoin him. And uh, he found himself there alone in this historic, mighty city of, uh, of learning and splendid beauty. And so while he was there, we, we, well, we could imagine, certainly I could imagine myself saying, this would be a wonderful time to explore the city while I wait for my friends to rejoin me uh, and to engage uh, in, in uh, sightseeing and in learning and to take a little vacation. Isn't that what you would have done? But that's not what Paul did. This was a man who was commissioned by God. And so we recognize, in a sense, the uniqueness of his task as an apostle. He was a man who was so absorbed with his work in bringing about uh, a serious worldwide evangelism. And so far as he could, he could not miss the opportunity. Being in this city, still yet unevangelized, he wasn't going to wait. He couldn't wait for his friends to join him. He sets about the work immediately. And knowing what we do about Paul, this should not surprise us in the least. Uh, this is, by the way, the value not only of reading the New Testament, but also of reading biography. When you read the stories of the saints that God has used so mightily, you see, uh, you, you see men who are so absorbed with the work of the kingdom of God, that it amazes us and it inspires us. And we need to be inspired, don't we? Well, when I read of the Apostle Paul like this, I, I tell you that I am inspired by the zeal that he had. And I can tell you that Paul is a model that we ought to follow. Now, when I make this contrast, when I say Paul might have taken a vacation and then resumed the work when his companions rejoined him, only he didn't, I'm only making... The same point that every commentator makes. It really is an obvious point when you think of it. If ever there was a chance for a break, here it was. But this was no time for a break. This is what John Stott says, for instance. Of course, he could have walked around Athens as a tourist, and we probably, as we probably would have done, in order to see the sights of the town. For the buildings and monuments of Athens were unrivaled. So he might have been spellbound by the sheer splendor of the city's architecture, history, and wisdom. Don't hear me saying, by the way, there's no place for a vacation. Obviously, I just took one. I'm just saying, well, this is, a, this is remarkable to see his zeal for evangelism. And sometimes uh, we, we can forget our zeal, but Paul never could. No, he, he wasn't spellbound by the splendor of the architecture, history, and wisdom the truth is he was appalled by what he saw there. And he was deeply concerned to share the gospel with them. Let us notice in the first place the setting in Athens of his evangelistic enterprise. And there were three settings of evangelism. The first we read is the synagogue, verse 17a. Therefore, he reasoned, in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers. That was his practice always. It was always to evangelize the Jew first, 
the Gospels for the Jew first and then for the Greek. Notice here, and I've been concerned to stress throughout Acts that uh, that Paul or, or Luke rather uh, seizes upon certain ideas. Then as he moves on, he takes up other ideas. One of the ideas that we find throughout this chapter, though in different settings, is the idea of Paul reasoning. We read in chapter 17, verses 2 through 4, uh, Paul, uh, as it was his custom, he had gone to the synagogue. And for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preached to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. Are we then surprised to see that he reasoned in this next town in the synagogue? He was doing the same thing. He was reasoning from the scriptures. He was seeking to persuade them. Well, let us see, uh, beloved, the gospel is a reasonable thing. There's nothing unreasonable about the gospel. It isn't contrary to reason. It's according to reason. From the, from the synagogue, we find, for he would have been there on the Sabbaths, but every day he was in the marketplace. In the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and some said, what does this babbler want to say? And so on. He was daily evangelizing with those who happened to be there. This is a kind of general evangelistic campaign. It's the kind of evangelism that resembles what we know in modern day America. Although not entirely. Because it was also in this way as we see uh, in these two verses. That he was engaged by the philosophers of the city. Who were also engaging the crowds uh, in the Socratic method. And so Paul sought to do the same. And in this way, he engaged and was engaged by the philosophers in his Christian teaching. The final setting is the Areopagus in verses 19 and following. Uh, The philosophers brought him there, verse 19, and it was there that he preached his sermon, verse 22. What was the Areopagus? Well, it was like a court or a council where disputes were settled. Not so much uh, legal disputes but uh, philosophical dispute. So it was a place of debate, and uh, the learned men of the city would settle the debates there, which they sought to do with Paul. The next thing we see are the central issues. There were three central issues present in the text, the first of which is the idolatry of pagan religion. Nowhere uh, in Acts do we find uh, the issue of idolatry uh, most seriously considered. Nowhere else than here. Idolatry being the hallmark of pagan religion. Now I want to be fair and to be careful uh, because really idolatry, if you read the Old Testament, was also the hallmark of Jewish religion. We see that the people in verse 22 were very religious. Paul says as much. I perceive that in all things you're very religious. It's possible, and you've probably heard this before, that when Paul said that, another rendering of the word is superstitious. I perceive that you're very superstitious. Well, whether we say superstitious or religious, what's clear, and here's the point we need to see as we, as we find Paul animated and engaged with them, is that they were religious, but their religion was false. What he was engaging was false religion, which they practiced and which cannot but be grievous to the pious soul. Again, verse 16, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. 
And so the first thing we see is idolatry, but the second is pagan philosophy or worldly wisdom. Verse 18, certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. Verse 21, for all the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. This was a city engaged in learning, a city uh, engaged uh, in high culture and in philosophy. There was always in Athens a desire to hear something new, a desire to learn. Tell me something I don't know. And there is something admittedly admirable about that. And so naturally there was an interest and a curiosity in what Paul was saying about Jesus and especially this strange doctrine of the resurrection, which, uh, as I'll tell you soon, none of them believed, none of them at all. Uh, believed in the resurrection they believed uh, that the soul was immortal perhaps but certainly not the body this was something strange this was something new but as they were accustomed to hearing something new they said let us hear this new thing the main two philosophies at that time were the epicurean and uh, that of the stoics Uh, and i can't claim at all to be an expert on these ancient philosophies i can only tell you very briefly what they believed Uh, They did not believe in the resurrection. I've already established that. But they did see the value of this life. And to put it in a very, very, uh, almost insultingly simple way to anyone who does know what they actually believed. But but the Stoics uh, believed in duty. And the Epicureans believed in pleasure and in leisure. Uh, But both of them, you see, were engaged uh, in, in the questions of this uh, life. And it's obvious that in answering those questions, they differed very widely in uh, their outlook, but neither, neither of them could accept a way of life based upon the life and the death and the resurrection of the man, Jesus Christ. They couldn't do that. Let me just as an aside make uh, this comment about the Christian's interest in philosophy. I think uh, we are in a, a center of learning. Uh, Tallahassee, uh, we are in a nation, uh, in a sense, uh, that is, I won't say obsessed, but certainly interested in learning. What is the the Christian's attitude towards philosophy to be? Well, I would say there's nothing wrong with the Christian taking up an interest in philosophy and studying philosophy. But what I would say is that in in the Christian's outlook, and we notice Paul's Uh, In in a sense, we could say his mastery of of philosophy, his ability to engage with these men, his interest in philosophy was always secondary. It was never primary. And so I would never tell a Christian not to take up an interest in philosophy or to read philosophy, but I would warn him that it ought always to be secondary, number one, and number two, it ought always to be in service of his theology. Theology is to be primary and we engage in philosophy as in all things for the glory of God and in order to know God the tragedy here is that here were men who were engaged in philosophy and who admitted they didn't know who God was and so what was the value of their philosophy if we are to be philosophers beloved let it let it be as those who know God and who seek to know him more but there's a third central issue and it is that of the Christian teaching Itself, And that is what they were especially interested to know. Verses 18b through 19. Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. Because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. 
And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. This was, for Paul, the central issue. It was the gospel that he preached concerning Jesus and the resurrection. And let us notice uh, that uh, these men were preachers of the resurrection. It's one of the things that we notice in Acts again and again and again. Something that sometimes we forget today. We love to talk about the death of Christ. And let us go on speaking of the death of Christ. But let me just notice how frequently the apostles preached the resurrection and how central it was to their preaching. And so Paul was eager to expound upon this given the chance. Let me also notice verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, uh, we will hear you again on this matter and so on. It's obvious, Luke tells us, that even they realized What Paul was really doing as he engaged them was expounding on the scandal of the resurrection, in particular, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, given the chance, he was eager to share the faith and the hope that was in him. And so let us notice next Paul's response to each of these issues, idolatry, philosophy, and and, uh, Christian teaching concerning idolatry. He was provoked. And that's, uh, that's what we see is true of the Lord throughout the Old Testament again and again. The Lord is provoked by what? By the idolatry of Israel. How can we describe what is expressed by this word? Uh, the only word that appropriately uh, expresses it is the word jealousy. The jealousy that God himself, start with him. That he feels for his own glory and his own name and his own worship. And when man is given to false worship, we provoke him to jealousy. And that's not the kind of thing you want to do. But it isn't the Lord here who is provoked. He was, but that's not the point. You see, it's the Apostle Paul. You know, I often think of how in in Psalm 119, I don't remember the verse, but David says, My eyes stream sheds or shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. You know, in a sense, we could say he was crying for them, but he was also grieving just for God's law. God's law is so beautiful. It's so lovely. I love it. But look at the Look at the nations. Look at my own nation. They break your law. That kind of feeling is appropriate in the heart of the saint. It is right. It is righteous for us to be provoked. And that's the kind of thing we ought to ask ourselves as we find ourselves like Paul in a kind of modern Athens that's interested in learning, but it isn't interested in God. And we are given, it seems, as a nation almost utterly and completely over to the pursuit of sin. I wonder, does it provoke you inwardly? Does it cause you to grieve? Yes, for the sinner who is perishing, but even beyond that. Do you find in your heart a kind of jealousy for God? Does it grieve you when men are given to idols? Does it grieve you when Christians are given to idols? Are you ever moved by a holy jealousy for God himself? Idolatry should be grievous to the Christian beloved. It was grievous to Paul. It should be grievous to us. It should provoke us. But that wasn't the only thing, his response. We're we're looking at his response to idolatry first. But he didn't just stay there. He didn't just get angry, if anger is even the appropriate word. 
but he sought to do something about it. And so he felt something, but he also did something. He was concerned. He set about immediately to teach in these various settings, in the synagogue, in the marketplace, and among the philosophers, the Areopagus. And so he engaged in correction and in reproof and reason. So often, by the way, this is what we find throughout the history of the church. You ask, why did, why did the reformers, why did the Puritans spend so much time talking about worship? Why do I spend so much time talking about worship? The answer is this, because false worship is grievous. It's grievous to God. And it's the kind of thing that ought to concern us. And so it isn't enough to be provoked and to be annoyed and to be angry. But we've got to engage the, the, the errors and then we've got to pursue the truth together. The kind of worship we engage in is desperately important. You see, notice what I'm saying. He was engaged in evangelism. And so you say, well, we'll get to worship later. Let's evangelize them. Let's make them Christians. And then in a couple of years, we'll catechize them about worship. But that isn't what we find here. That worship itself became the context of evangelism. And so in contending for the true worship, what was he, the true worship of God, what was he doing? He was evangelizing them. Do you understand that these two things can never be separated? And these ought to be always the concern of the Christian. Concerning philosophy next, what did he do? Well, he did the same thing. He engaged them in, in a very... Uh, I read uh, someone say, I don't remember who it was, that this was Paul's most cultured sermon. Whoever knew that the Apostle Paul, who had such a mastery of the scriptures, could also quote the, the poets. <laughs> uh, but there he was doing so. He, w- he could stand toe-to-toe with the Epicureans and the Stoics. He wasn't intimidated by them in the least. It's interesting to notice the form of this cultured sermon. It has the flavor, let us be honest. I'm not one who talks about this a lot. It is certainly not... One of my great interests, and it is not a hallmark of my ministry, but let us be honest, this has the flavor of apologetics. That's what we find the Apostle Paul doing, which is why Acts chapter 17 is among the favorite texts of the Christian apologist. Why? Because clearly that's what he was doing here. He's engaging with their thought and using it as a chance to engage their unbelief, which the apologist should always do. But the last thing concerns their question about his teaching concerning his claim about Jesus and the resurrection having been misunderstood. What was his response to that? We want to hear more about this. Well, his response was to preach. And so we notice in the fourth place, Paul's sermon. His sermon, which begins uh, in the midst of uh, the Areopagus, which was a place. But uh, there we find a council of men. Paul was speaking to them. It's amazing to notice the variety of settings. Uh, We'll we'll notice Paul soon speaking uh, to those in authority. You know, he would preach to anyone who would listen. It's amazing to notice. Uh, And, and, well, as we look at this sermon, we, we notice, first of all, as before, and this is always true of Paul, you ask the question, why do his sermons vary so much? As to the kernel of the message, they don't vary at all. But the the form that his sermons take, there is this amazing variety. In fact, there is so much variety, especially in this case. This sermon is so different than any other sermon that he preached that it's been a kind of famous question to ask 
whether Paul could have ever preached it. Could this man, Paul, that we know of so well from his letters and from Acts, could he have preached this sermon? I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I can hardly take the question seriously. I take uh, the authority of Scripture as sufficient to answer the question, but it, the question itself underlines the fact of the variety. Well, why, was, why did he vary his message so much? Because I make this point over and over again. And it's sometimes uh, something the preacher needs to remind himself of over and over again. And that is that the preacher should always be absorbed with his hearers. And a man like Paul, you see, not just his message. He doesn't just stand there reading his message and never uh, looks to his hearers. He never takes any interest in his hearers. A lot of preachers, by the way, you may or may not know this, they prepare their sermons primarily with themselves in mind. They preach the things that interest them. But that isn't what you find in Paul. And as he was an itinerant preacher going from place to place, he was absorbed with his hearers. And that being the case, he was engaging them. And his messages were bound to vary. You see, it's such a silly question. Could Paul have preached this? And what was he aiming at? Well, he was aiming at the same thing he always aimed at, and that was their conversion. And as he aimed at their conversion... He did something that was very daring, though perhaps he knew that he could be as controversial as he liked there without any threat of being stoned as in other places. What he did is he defined their sin. He engaged them in their idolatry. It was not simply, as you might find in evangelistic campaigns today, it was not simply a generic presentation of the gospel. But here was a man, as we find Peter doing at Pentecost, who engaged men in their sin. He was interested in addressing their idolatry again and again. Beloved, that is what we see in the apostolic preaching. We find, well, if I could put it this way, and I'm not trying to be controversial, but he, these men did not rush to the gospel. Rarely did they begin with it. They, uh, they did, as the Puritans would say, a bit of law work first, showing men their true state and their true need need for the good news which follows. They wanted men to understand why it was the message of Christianity was so, uh, so necessary and relevant to their lives. Why? It is because uh, these men, in this case, were given over to idolatry. It, it's because by their own admission, they did not know God. They were ignorant of God. The best they could do was fashion idols and, and make their best guess. It is important that men understand and are made to understand through the preaching how lost they are without the gospel. And that is why I believe so much evangelism today is defective. It is said uh, again and again that men won't listen to any talk of sin. And so just tell them the good news. Well, is that what you find the apostles doing? Men must see their folly before they embrace true wisdom. Men must feel they are sinners before they will seek a savior. We find five points against idolatry here. The apostle uh, taking as his point of departure this, this inscription that interested him, an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. He says, you know, that's very interesting. Here you guys are uh, acknowledging, you, you, well, you're religious. You're engaged in religion. And yet even you concede that you do not know the God you claim to worship. You acknowledge 
deity, but it is an unknown deity. Well, the deity that you claim not to know is the one I proclaim to you. That's what Paul says, the true God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. And so the central fact uh, or the central uh, focus rather of the sermon is the knowledge of God. He is seeking to impart into them the knowledge of God, which comes only from the scriptures. Now, one of the interesting facts, and, and this is why people say, did Paul really preach this as he never quotes a single scripture? He quotes the poets, but he doesn't quote the scripture. But there is no way to to read what Paul is saying here and not see that he is preaching the scripture. He's just summarizing them. He is preaching uh, the central facts and the central message of the Bible. And he begins, as the scriptures do, with the beginning. The fact that God, as the Lord, created the world. Verse 24, God, him I proclaim to you, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the one who made it. He's the Lord. That's not only the first fact, but that is a repeated fact that you will find throughout the New Testament. How foolish then to imagine he dwells in temples we have made. This is a point that has been made before in Acts. It's a point that was made in the Old Testament. God who dwells in heaven and whose glory is fills the earth, does not dwell in temples that we have made. He's the creator. He's also the sustainer, verse 25. Nor is he worshipped. Well, let me finish verse 24. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now verse 25. Nor is he worshipped with with, uh, men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. He's the creator, so he's the sustainer. He isn't worshipped, Paul is saying, with anything we've made with our own hands, since he's the one who sustains us all. Is there anything we can offer to him that he's not first given to us? Do you see the echoes from this morning? Do we draw life from him and think he is sustained by anything in us? By the way, that was ancient pagan philosophy, that the life of the, of, uh, the pantheon of gods was sustained by our worship. And if we stop worshiping them, they would literally die off. Paul says that is utter folly. He doesn't need us. He draws and sustains life from himself. And the reality is the reverse. We draw and sustain life from him. Number three, he's near unto us all, verses 26 and 27. The third argument against idolatry. He's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. As he made us and sustained us so he has filled the earth with mankind and he's determined all the places and the the times of man. And as he's done this, do we think that God, as he's not only filled the, the world, but placed each one of us exactly where he wants us. Do you think that he is seeking after us as though he needs to find us? No, it is he who has determined the places and the times of men, which tells us decidedly that he is near unto us. 
with the result that we see that he isn't seeking after us, but that we are meant to seek after him. What then is the value of idols? Do we seek to localize by wood and stone and gold he who is near unto us? So too, number four, he's the father of us all. Verses 28 and 29. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of uh, your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Therefore, since we are uh, the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. You know, Paul is saying the poets themselves recognize this. All life springs from him, this unknown deity who I am proclaiming to you. And in him we live and move and have our being again, another echo of what we saw this morning. In other words, what is man but for God? Man is nothing. He wouldn't exist nor draw a single breath if God did not allow it. And so man as created in the image of God as his offspring. Man owes his existence to God as the father of all living. I understand, not in a redemptive sense. It is only those who have faith, who have been born again, who have been enabled to become the children or the sons of God. The New Testament is clear about this. But in a general sense, we can speak of man as the offspring of God. All of man derives his being from God. All of man, in that sense, is the image is related to God. And if that is so, again, realize this is an argument against idolatry. If that is so, do we make his nature to appear below our own, devising idols as his likeness, idols which are beneath ourselves in glory? If he is our father in whom we live and move and have our being, does that not prove rather the reverse? Not that he is like wood and stone, but that his essence is infinitely greater than our own. Truly, we ought to be impressed above all with the spiritual essence of the divine nature, which God has made clear to all. Romans chapter one, though they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The last thing he says is that God is the judge of all. And notice, by the way, that the sweep of redemptive history uh, is, is, is taught here. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's near to us all, everywhere. He, he may be found. He's the father of us all. He's the judge of all. He begins with creation. He ends with judgment. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. He's saying this. God has endured, and he says this in other places, he's endured your ignorance for only so long. But something profound has changed in the history of man, and that is the coming of Jesus Christ. And all the things about which you claimed ignorance, though you really knew them and you suppressed them in unrighteousness, God is now making them clear to you. He's made them clear to you. He has made clear to you the vanity of idols. He's made clear by by appearing in the flesh. He has made clear to you uh, the, the, the spiritual essence of his nature. He has made clear to you the reality of 
judgment. How? By raising Jesus Christ from the dead. And not only has, has he declared that he's appointed a day in which to judge uh, idolaters and all manner of sinners, but he has appointed this man, Jesus Christ. And again, you see, that was the scandal for the philosopher. It remains the scandal today. Because what I am saying to you is what Paul was saying to them. And that is uh, your entire life. In fact, uh, the life to come. Eternity. That will be resolved on the final judgment. Hinges not on the degree and the sophistication of your learning and philosophy. It hinges solely and entirely upon your relationship to the man, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul is calling uh, the wise men of Athens to follow him. Here the, the summons of the gospel is made clear. God is near unto you. And never more so than when God dwelt among us in the flesh through Jesus Christ. And now God has made clear unto all men everywhere. Through the preaching of the gospel. That by repentance and by faith we may have life in his name. You see, the wonder of the gospel is that even as Jesus Christ has been appointed in his resurrection, the judge of all mankind, that he should become our savior when we have faith in him. Just as soon as you have faith in him, he is no longer your judge but your friend. Repent or perish, that's the message of the gospel. That's the summons of the gospel. And it's well that we hear it often. Repent, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Those are the alternatives that are set before men. You see, it isn't the alternatives between the Epicurean and the Stoic. It's what do you make of this man, Jesus Christ. And by the way, what do you make of God in light of him? You see, the great question that is, there's several questions, but one of the great questions, I won't say it's the great question, is if God is really like this, if he has revealed himself to us in this way, and he has drawn near to us, and he has summoned us to be saved by faith in his son, and he has appointed a day in which we are all to be judged by the son whom he has raised, if God is really like that, how is he to be worshipped? You see, we are meant to believe in this God. And so I'll ask you, do you believe in this God? Are you still listening to the world and its vanity and its philosophy? Do you believe in this God? And have you, uh, have you been reconciled through his son? Do you know what it is to be saved? Do you know what it is uh, to be delivered from the wrath that is to come? The day in which all men will be judged. But if you know that, Do you have a concern that Paul is seeking to instill in these Athenians, the few who would really listen? We read at the end that some believed. The most of them dismissed him and and mocked him, but there were just a few who believed. Do you have the concern that Paul would instill in them to worship God aright? That is the concern. That is the concern of the new man in Jesus Christ. That is the concern of the evangelist. It isn't just to give the people a little bit of gospel, no matter how much idolatry they may be given to. 
No, now that we have become Christians, the central concern of our lives is worship, worshiping God rightly. Let me put it like this. There is no longer any excuse for idolatry for the Christian. No, not now that Jesus Christ has appeared. Not now that God has raised him from the dead and declared him unto you. There is no longer any excuse for idolatry for the Christian. And may it ever provoke us wherever we find it. And may worship be for us one of our central concerns. Amen. And let us uh, return praise to God by standing together and singing hymn 467. Hymn 467.